You've got to develop your internal attributes before you can have a positive effect on others. You must throw wood on your campfire before it casts light. John Gronsky. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 59 of the Intentional Leader Podcast, where we are all about helping you lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. With a new episode released every two weeks, I hope that this podcast can be a community that helps you stay focused and helps you find inspiration in that often challenging world of leadership, whether you're just leading yourself, whether you're leading your family, whether you're leading a team, leadership is hard. It's simple but it's hard. I want to give a special thank you to all of you that have shared this podcast with your network, that have shared it with a friend. I see you sharing on social media. Thank you so much. I also want to thank all of you that have taken the time to rate and or review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Keep Coach, who said, I literally wait in eager anticipation for these podcasts to come out every other week. The amount of growth and wisdom I have gained from Cal and all the numerous guests is immeasurable. I listen to them on my morning commute and input a lot of the materials and concepts in my morning meetings with my employees. The leadership experiences that come through these podcasts are unparalleled. Hopefully Cal can get some assistance so he can produce them at a faster rate. I simply can't get enough of them. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you to Keep Coach and thank you to all of you that have rated or reviewed this podcast. I also want to thank everyone that has partnered with us financially through our Patreon account. Just visit Patreon. That's P-A-T. R-E-O-N.com slash Cal Walters to join. Your support helps us inspire leaders around the world, literally around the world. We're getting in more and more countries and it helps us close the gap in leadership instruction. When you help leaders get better is exponential. I mean, truly when they get better, when you get better, when I get better, we immediately go and transfer that to our teams. That ripple effect is amazing. Today's episode is brought to you by Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to optimize performance. Higher Echelon can help prepare your organization to meet the rapidly changing, complex, and often ambiguous requirements of today's world by developing resilient and adaptive leaders, by helping you modernize and enhance your processes, and by helping you implement transformational technology solutions. I I mean, you probably, if you're leading a team right now, it is increasingly complex. And I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me about my conversation with the president of Higher Echelon, Dr. Joe Ross, and talked to me about how valuable it was to watch him go through the process of coaching me through my goals. And that's exactly what the team at Higher Echelon does. Dr. Ross and his incredible team will help you figure out your organizational strategy that will help coach you through your goals, that will help bring clarity. Sometimes it's incredibly valuable to have someone from outside your organization come and look at what you're doing and offer their expertise into what you're doing. Just go to visit higherechelon.com. You can connect with the amazing team at Higher Echelon. You can learn more about how they can help you and your team grow. Today, I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with Major General Retired John Gronsky. I can't say enough great things about General Gronsky. He's extremely accomplished as a leader, and he's led through some of the most difficult conditions that you can imagine, including being a brigade commander in Ramadi during the Battle of Ramadi. And yet, when I met with him for this interview, he was the kindest, most approachable person that you can imagine. He's extremely humble, and he is filled with wisdom from decades, 40 years of leadership. Many of you may know him from his interview on episode 235 of Jocko Willink's podcast. He's just incredible. General Grodsky is the founder and the CEO of Leader Grove, a keynote speaker. He's a leadership seminar facilitator, executive coach, author, director of the Leadership Academy for Student Athletes at Lebanon Valley College. And he's the author of the inspirational leadership book, The Ride of Our Lives, Lessons on Life, Leadership, and Love which tells the story of his family traveling across country back in 1983 
on their bikes. It's just an incredible story. And we get into that on this episode. He's also authored a new book, which is coming out in June called Iron Sharpen Leadership, which you can pre-order now. Just go to his website, johngronsky.com. You can also check out his full bio and show notes and his books at my website, calwalters.me. On this episode, we dive into his views on vulnerability and leadership. We talk about his journey growing up as one of seven kids and the loss of his mom. We talk about leadership lessons that he learned from biking across the country with his wife and their 15-month-old son. He talks about how to give honest, tough feedback. He talks about lessons from his leadership in Ramadi and so much more. This is truly a leadership masterclass from a servant leader with over 40 years of leadership experience. Please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Major General Retire John Gronsky. General Gronsky, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here with us today. Kale, it's great to be with you. Thank you for hosting this. I just finished listening to your to your interview with Jocko Willink, and it was incredible. Three hours, I was at the edge of my seat, just hearing every bit of your story. Uh, what a cool opportunity, I'm sure, for both of you to reminisce on your experiences together. What was that like for you, sitting down with Jocko and talking about your time in Ramadi? Yeah, it, it was... Uh... It was, it was fatiguing actually. Uh, <laughs> three hours. <laughs> yeah, three hours. And then, you know, uh, the very next morning I met a, a friend of mine who was my Anglico uh, over there in Ramadi. You know, since I had an army brigade task organized to a Marine division, you know, I had a Marine Anglico working in my headquarters. His name is Mike Grice, just a fantastic individual. And I, I, I had breakfast with him the very next day after talking to Jocko. And of course, uh, that conversation gravitated back to Ramadi as well. Hmm. And after he said his farewell to me, I, I said to my wife when I saw her after breakfast, I said, you know, I said, I, you know, I've been back to Ramadi the last two days and I'm glad to be back home again, if you know what I mean. You could only uh, uh, immerse yourself so much in that particular time period uh, and, and, and what went on there over that very violent year so much. So I, I kind of went there, I went back there mm-hmm. and I said to my wife, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be leaving there again. Mm. Yeah. How do you deal with that, sir? I mean, that's got to be tough. Uh, I, I spent a year in Iraq and I was actually just talking to my wife a little while ago. I was preparing to be interviewed on a podcast that talks about PTSD and I was telling my wife, I was like, sweetie, I don't really think I have PTSD. I don't really know that I have much to tell her about. Uh, and then she told me, she's like, Cal, I remember when you got back from Iraq for that year that you got back, you weren't the same Cal. And it was almost, I, she had never really told me that before, but I'm just curious for you, sir. I mean, you've seen and you've, you've experienced some really tough things. You've lost many soldiers while being over there fighting in war. How, how do you deal with that? Because we do have a lot of uh, veterans that tend to listen to this show. So I'm just curious how you, you handle that in your life, sir. Yeah, I think the best thing um, in my experience is, is you've got to talk to people uh, about the experience and, and generally um, talking to somebody who's had a similar experience. So I would just recommend to anybody listening to your podcast who is struggling with PTSD to, you know, if you don't have a buddy with a similar experience that you feel comfortable talking to, talk to a professional. Uh, but but you've, 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 you've got to talk to somebody. You can't, you can't bottle it up. You can't hold it in. You know, situation right now is we've got about 22 veterans a day who are, who are committing suicide. And, and that's, a, that's an epidemic. Uh, that's something that we really have to focus on got to reach out. You've got to ask for help. You've got to talk to somebody. Was that a hard leap for you as someone who's, I mean, you were leading troops in combat. Uh, and I think sometimes that means you got to be tough and sometimes being tough can be interpreted as you don't talk about your weaknesses. You don't, you're not vulnerable. You know, that's a sign of weakness. Was that a tough leap for you to get there? Have you always been able to be vulnerable, I guess, and yet still be tough. Yeah, you know, I right now I talk a lot about vulnerability and the importance of being vulnerable as a leader. Uh, you know, we're taught in the army 
or in any military service, you know, as you said, you have to be tough. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis put put on that. I did not like to show a lot of emotion when I was over there in Ramadi, although sometimes it was shown anyway. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, I, I think you are exactly right that for leaders to be effective, they have to show their followers that they are not robots, that they do have feelings, and uh, they, they have to allow themselves to be approachable. You know, I think it was uh, Colin Powell who said, you know, that the day that, that soldiers stop bringing you their problems is the day you stop being a leader. So you, you've, my belief is you've got to be a leader uh, that soldiers feel comfortable you know, bringing problems to and, and relating to. And one of the ways to do that is by showing them that, that you've got emotions, that you, that you are vulnerable. Uh, one of the things I talk about is leaders should, you know, at the right times, you know, tell stories about mistakes they made mm. and, and how they learn from those mistakes. Uh, because sometimes followers look at a particular leader, especially if you're leading a brigade, leading a division, what, whatever organization it could be in the civilian sector, uh, you know, leading a, a large organization and people think, wow, that leader must have never made a mistake or they never would have reached that position. And we know, Cal, as leaders, nothing could be farther from the truth. We all make mistakes. We all learn from those mistakes. And I think that's a good message to get out to our followers. Is that something that you typically do later in your leadership process? Because I'm just trying to figure out how you can thread that needle between appearing competent, because you obviously as a leader, you want to instill confidence in your team that you can do the job. But you're also, to your point, demonstrating that you're not a robot. You're, you're human. You're, you're approachable. You're relatable. So how have you found that you can thread that needle? Is that is are you maybe more vulnerable later, uh, and then up front you're you you kind of make it clear that you're there to do the job and you're competent and able to do the job. Yeah, you know I, I think um, most soldiers, no matter what their age, no matter what their rank, no matter what their experience in the military is, and and most people, they I think they they know that you know nobody is infallible. People are going to make mistakes, so I think it's really about being authentic. And I, I think people appreciate when you're authentic. You know, I remember one day in Ramadi, I was out on a patrol, a dismounted patrol with an, a unit. And uh, as I'm out on this dismounted patrol, uh, you know, and Ramadi was filled with, with sewage, uh, you know, and muck all the time because of all the roadside bombs, you know, damaging the infrastructure. And as I'm out there, I slip and I just like flop down you know, full body into this <laughs> sewage and muck. And I'm, I'm laying there covered with the sewage and my soldiers standing around, they're like looking at me and I see this expression on their face and I'm laying there and I look up at them and I said, Hey guys, it's okay. You could laugh. And they just all bursted out laughing, you know, cause there was their brigade commander laying in the sewage. And, and, uh, so, I mean, Hey, you know, uh, there's another saying that the higher a monkey climbs a rope, the more it shows its, its ass, you know? And, uh, you know, so I, I, I believe that, that, Hey, you know, I'm not perfect. I don't care, you know, how high I've advanced in the military, you know, any leader could still make a mistake. And I think you just have to be authentic. You have to be humble enough to accept the fact that, Hey, I I can make mistakes too. Yeah, I love that. And I think it also highlights how you can't take yourself too seriously. Uh, no matter how high you rise, you got to be willing to laugh. You got to be willing to laugh at yourself, uh, allow other people to laugh at you at your expense. Right. I, think that's, I think that's great advice. And, it, and it's, it's a great reminder too, in the busyness of whatever, you're over there in Ramadi doing probably the most serious work anyone could possibly do, but yet you're still uh, finding time to laugh. And I just think that's important. Uh, yeah, that, that, that happened a lot, uh, where, you know how it is, you know, soldiers could be in the toughest situation anywhere <laughs> and they're going to find a way to laugh and make a joke about it. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I, I love, I love being in the service. I love working with soldiers. They, they will always surprise you and keep things light no matter how tough things get. Exactly. 
Well, I really want to dig into leadership with you, but before we get too far down that road, I want to get a little bit of your background because uh, you have such a neat uh, story growing up. You were one of, was it seven kids? Seven, I have seven yeah. kids. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up as one of seven and tell us about the situation with your, your mom and your dad and, and how that shaped you. Yeah. Um, you know, I was uh, uh, born into a, the, a family. I was the youngest of seven. Uh, tragedy happened as I was born. My, my mother died three days after I was born. So that, you know, obviously very hard on my dad, very hard on my brothers and sisters to have to deal with that. And, um, but I, you know, I, I grew up in a household that was still filled with love. Both of my sisters were like surrogate mothers to me. My father's sister, you know, my aunt, she was like a surrogate mother to me. So I lost one mother, but I ended up with, with three, really, when you get right down to it. And uh, my dad, a uh, World War II veteran, uh, he also had a rough uh, time of it when he was born. You know, his, uh, uh, his parents, my grandparents, emigrated from, from Poland. And so uh, he was the, the son of Polish immigrants. And his dad worked in the mines. And his dad died in the mines in a mine accident three months before my father was born. So, wow. you know, my, my father grew up with, with, as, with just a single parent raising him. And because times were tough back then in the 1920s, he had to uh, leave school after the seventh grade. And, you know, he worked on a, on a wagon delivering ice to ice boxes. And, and then he worked in restaurants. And then, you know, World War II happened. He, he uh, was in the Army Air Corps. Uh, he had a very humble job. He was a cook in the Army Air Corps, uh, but he did serve. And uh, he comes back after World War II and in 1954 opened up a garage where he was repairing cars. And then he started to fix up some cars and sell them. So he had a used car lot. And then that just expanded over the years, you know, by by time, you know, I was a teenager in the 1970s. It was a very large business. Uh, we also sold uh, boats, you know, for fishing and for water skiing. We also sold bicycles. So it was a business he, he built uh, with a seventh grade education, uh, you know, that, that employed almost 40 people and was uh, really a, a, a landmark in northeastern Pennsylvania. So he did a, a great job as an entrepreneur and, and as a parent. So he sounds like a fascinating guy. I would love to just ask you all day about your, your dad. What qualities do you think you learn most from him? What qualities about him do you think you've taken with you the most? Yeah, he was uh, uh, pretty much a, uh, a straightforward guy. You know, he didn't beat around the bush. You know, he, he said what he thought, uh, and he uh, also was very interested in customer service, you know, treating customers fairly, uh, properly, uh, you know, giving people uh, their money's worth of whatever they, whatever service or, or product they, they uh, bought from them. And so, you know, just, just learn those basic values of, of integrity, of honesty, of, of trying to give people, uh, you know, fair value for for, you know, the money they're providing. So hard work, you know, you know, he, he worked long hours and all of us kids were expected to work hard as well. And uh, so just, just those basic things that uh, I think have made our country so great. Do you think a lot of the leadership principles that you have today come from him? Oh, w w without any doubt. Uh, you know, he was all also, uh, uh, a very religious man, you know, he was uh, very active in the church, you know, so he, he believed in, in spiritual fitness. And um, yeah, I mean, all of those characteristics that I, I mentioned, especially the part about integrity, the part about hard work, about, about treating people right, uh, I, I certainly learned from him. And you mentioned that he was really, he was not someone that beat around the bush. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean by that? Like, was he, would you describe him as uh, mean or was he just direct and clear with people? Yeah, I think he was direct and clear with people. 
And I think when you're direct and clear with people, some people could interpret that as being mean. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, he didn't mince words. He told people exactly what they felt. A lot of people loved him because of that. And I'm sure some people <laughs> didn't like him so much because of that. <laughs> it makes me think of what Brene Brown says, which is clear is kind, unclear is unkind. I was actually thinking about that today of just yeah. how important it is. I think sometimes we think, well, you know, I don't want to be mean. I, I want this person to like me. And then because of that, we're not clear with people. And then ultimately we get frustrated when they don't meet our expectations. Uh, wherein I think a lot of us at a certain point of maturity really just appreciate clarity. Just tell me what you expect. If I mess something up, be honest with me. And, and so I feel like as I hopefully mature as a leader, I think that's becoming something that's more and more important to me is just clarity with people. And, you know, as I, as I um, matured as a leader, I found that to be very, very important. Uh, I found that, uh, you know, if, if people are not meeting the standard, they want to hear it from you. Because th this is what I found. Most people that, that, that I led, if they weren't meeting the standard, they, they pretty much knew they weren't meeting the standard. And they were expecting a leader to call them out. And when a leader doesn't call them out, they lose respect for that leader. Uh, and, and so I found that, you know, um, again, I, I'm big on dignity and respect to everyone who works for me. But that doesn't mean you cannot counsel somebody in a dignified and respectful way. You know, if somebody isn't meeting the standard, you could bring them in, private setting, and in a dignified and respectful way, explain that to them. You could actually fire somebody in a dignified and respectful way. So being, you know, treating people with dignity and respect doesn't mean you're being soft on them. It means exactly what it is. You're being respectful of them as a human being. You're criticizing in private rather than in public. And when they're not meeting the standard, you, you are letting them know that. And most people, unless they're very immature, are going to appreciate that. Yeah. How, how do you do that? General Grodsky, how do you fire someone with dignity and respect? Are there any tips you would give us? And, and not that I'm wanting to fire someone, but or even just counsel someone, give them negative feedback. Yeah, what I, what I, what, what I like to do uh, is I ask them first, you know, uh, you know, what their evaluation of themselves is first. And most people in a setting like that with somebody they respect are, are going to be believe it or not, more honest than you would think, and maybe even harder on themselves than, than you would have been. So I give them that opportunity. I ask them, hey, what do you think your weaknesses are? You know, what do you think you could improve on? And, and also, you know, what do you think your strengths are? What do you think you're doing well? And I like to start the conversation that way uh, rather than, I like to do it more as an AAR, more as an after action review than, more, than, than a critique. And, and usually in an after action review, the facilitator who gets the, the people participating in the after action review speaking more than the facilitator, the better the after action review is. So I, I like to conduct it that way. And in terms of, of firing somebody, I mean, if it comes to that and, and usually, you know, as you're trying to develop someone, you know, uh, sometimes it's an attitude issue. Sometimes it's a training issue. And, and, and you know, once you retrain somebody you know, if, if they're still not getting it, uh, then, you know, you just have to be honest with the person and maybe they don't have a certain aptitude for something. Maybe it's just the wrong size or the wrong shape peg and the wrong shape hole. Maybe they just got to do something a little bit different. And uh, most people feel liberated when you help them get into the right position so they could thrive rather than being in a position they're not comfortable with and, and have, uh, you know, they, they're just struggling and, and, and drowning. And, and a lot of times, if you help them get into a better position, they're, they're actually very appreciative of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so, I, so, General Grodsky, so you, you grew up with, you're one of seven. Uh, did you, and you mentioned that your, your father was in the Army Air Corps. Did you decide to go into the military later in life? Or when did you decide that the military was a path that you wanted to go down? 
Yeah, I think it was later in life. Uh, you know, my father actually encouraged me to join the military. You know, I, I was went to college after high school, University of Scranton. They had an ROTC pro- program there, which my father encouraged me to join. But being a 19-year-old, obviously, I didn't listen to my father. Uh, you know, if he was recommend, <laughs> if he was recommending I do it, it probably wasn't a good choice. So I didn't. Uh, but then I, uh, you know, I got this letter from the ROTC department uh, while I was a sophomore, and it talked about going to this ROTC basic camp at Fort Knox between my sophomore and, and junior year. And to tell you the truth, that summer I just wanted to, you know, kind of get out of my hometown and get away from from the family business. And uh, I thought, man. Let me give this a shot. And I just absolutely loved it. You know, it was we had uh, these drill sergeants there uh, who were all like Vietnam vets. <laughs> and uh, it was just a uh, like a tough environment and and, you know, a lot of physical uh, components to it. And, and then, you know, just a lot of the basic infantry tactics. And I just loved everything about it and uh, came came back from that camp at Fort Knox after spending about six weeks there that summer in 1976 and uh, immediately joined the ROTC. You know, I signed a contract and then uh, enjoyed the, the two years that I went through the, the training there with the ROTC department. Made many great friends there that I still have today. And when did you, when did you do your cross-country bike trip in reference to that? Yeah, I... I I went on active duty in 78 after I got my commission, you know, graduated okay. from college, got my commission, spent four years in the army, uh, left the army in 1982. I just figured, okay, I did my four years. I'm going to get out. There wasn't a lot really going on then either, uh, military wise, you got right down to it. And, um, uh, and, uh, lived up in Tacoma, Washington because I had been stationed at Fort Lewis at, the, at that time when I left active duty. Uh, worked up in uh, Tacoma for a while and then uh, talked to my wife about relocating back to northeastern Pennsylvania. We had been married about three years. We had, a, at that time, a, a one-year-old baby. And I, I suggested to her that since we were transitioning between jobs and that we were on the West Coast and we're moving back to the East Coast, and it had been a long-term, uh, long-term dream of mine to bicycle across the United States, <laughs> that, hey, this would be an ideal time to, for me to fulfill that dream. And yeah, we got, uh, you know, Stephen, who's going to be 15 months old when we start the trip, but that shouldn't stop us. You know, we'll do it as a team. <laughs> uh, what did your, how did your wife react when you suggested this? Well, you know, she was born in Austria and lived in Austria until she was in her early 20s. Uh, so, uh, she was relatively new, not only to our marriage, but to the United States. And, <laughs> and, uh, she, uh, she had, she put her trust in me and she, uh, she's an adventurous spirit too, obviously leaving Austria to make a life for herself in a new country takes a bit of an adventurous spirit. And so she, uh, she agreed to it and, and, uh, it was, it was a very, uh, memorable three months in our life. Oh, I bet. I bet. So tell us, what was your plan? What get, Take us into the weeds. Like, well, how did you plan to go from Washington, I guess, back to Pennsylvania? Yeah. What, what, you know, how did you plan to, what states did you plan to travel through? How are you going to handle this? Uh, you said 16 month old child at the time? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 15 months old when we started 18 okay, months 15. old when we, when we completed the trip. Okay. Uh, but yeah, living up in Tacoma, Washington, uh, we both, you know, stayed in excellent condition. We, we did cycle, we did hike a lot, all, all that cool stuff that you could do in the Northwest. And, um, you know, just, just putting a plan for the trip together. There was this organization called bike centennial. And in 1976, it was the bicentennial of our nation. And this organization, Bike Centennial, kind of came up with this route from Astoria, Oregon, to Yorktown, Virginia. And it was a a proposed bike route they put together. Uh, It wasn't a bike trail. It was just, you know, biking along roads with cars, but it was a recommended route. So I I bought those maps, and um, we, we decided to... 
spend about half of the time of our trip on that route. The other half we deviated from. Uh, I can't remember exactly why we made this decision, uh, but uh, there was a point when we were in Oregon or Idaho when we decided to, rather than bike uh, across the northern part of the country, to bike all the way down to Pueblo, Colorado, and then and then head across the country that way. But now that I'm saying that, it's coming back to me, I think the reason we made that decision is when we drove from Fort Benning, Georgia, to Fort Lewis, Washington, we actually drove through the Dakotas and through Yellowstone and all that. So we had seen that. So yeah. we decided to take a longer route on our bikes <laughs> to see a part of the country we hadn't seen. So what did you pack? Yeah, we had a two-man uh, backpacking tent, two sleeping bags. Uh, it was all self-supported, which meant we carried all of our own gear on bike packs attached to our bikes. Okay. And then I had a bicycle trailer for Steven. You know, he, <laughs> he rode in this bicycle trailer that we also put additional <laughs> gear in. Now, that was the thing. You know, biking with a 15-month-old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the trailer, when it was empty, empty weighed 25 pounds. Stephen weighed another 30 pounds. The extra gear we needed to take care of a baby weighed about an extra 25 pounds. So I was, I was towing an additional 80 pounds of weight along with the normal gear I would have that most cross-country bikers didn't have to tow. But that allowed uh, Bairdy and, and me to go at about the same pace. <laughs> you know, because the trailer slowed me down a little bit. And and how did how did the fifteen month old do? Uh, Stephen did great. You know, he's like any fifteen month old, resilient. Yeah. You know, he didn't know any other <laughs> any other way of living at that time, as long as he had his parents with him. So we would bike for about two hours and then stop and let him get out and run around and play with him, and then put him back in the trailer and bike about another two hours. So that. That's kind of how our days went. We would stop about every two hours or so, let him get out, let him run around. And uh, he he just didn't know any other life than that at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just riding with my parents across country. <laughs> exactly. What else would I be doing? Right. Uh, so where did you stay? A variety of places. You know, we, we stayed in campgrounds when we could. Uh, but, uh, you know, on a trip like that back in 1983, you couldn't always find a campground. So we, we stayed in farmer's fields. We stayed be behind churches, behind schools. Uh, we stayed in three different uh, fraternity houses. We, uh, you know, little town parks, especially, you know, in Kansas and in that area. So we just stayed uh, in a variety of places and uh, tried to p select a spot before it got dark in what we figured would, would, would be a, a pretty safe area. So that, that's, that's, that's how we did it. And did you have a cell phone at this time or? Oh, no, cell phones didn't exist. <laughs> how would you, how would you get these house arrangements? Oh, we would uh, just like, if we were going to stay at a, at a fraternity house, we would bike onto the campus. And, and I read in a book somewhere before we started our trip that, Hey, if you're biking across the United States in the summer, you may want to try to stay at college campuses because there's not many students there. And so, um, you know, three different college campuses, we just biked onto the campus, found somebody walking around and said, hey, we're biking across the United States. You know, is there a place, you know, we could stay here? And uh, yeah, you know, the fraternity houses were pretty good at letting us stay there. We did stay in a, a dormitory with a college football team in Kentucky, which was kind of interesting because <laughs> these, these, these guys were like all, you know, big, you know, college football players, 300 pounders. And uh, my wife didn't like that too much because, uh, you know, it was obviously uh, football, so it was all male. And she had to stay in this all male dormitory, <laughs> which was a little bit awkward for her. But uh, no, we, we, we just uh, were, hey, you talk about adaptable, you talk about agile, you talk about pivoting, mm. especially in the COVID-19 environment. Yes. Uh, we, we were all of that, agile, adapt, adaptable, and we were able to pivot when we needed to. So what do you think some of the biggest takeaways were from that trip? And, and I'm curious too, how you and your spouse grew during that time. Yeah, it, it was a great uh, developmental experience for me and my wife for a few different reasons. First of all, if we got mad at one another, 
there was no place to run <laughs> off to, you know, you know, she couldn't run to her parents. I couldn't run to my parents, you know, uh, you know, we were kind of in it, uh, to, to succeed together. Although there weren't too many times when we had that type of friction anyway, but, um, we learned a lot about each other. I mean, you spend, we spend three months constantly with one another in each mm -hmm. other's company. So you learn about each other. You're going through some very demanding times in terms of weather, you know, uh, snow as we cross the Cascades in, in Oregon, 110 degree heat in Pueblo, Colorado. Uh, so, you know, extreme temperatures, that was demanding. The um, uh, wind in Kansas was very demanding. We hit some significant crosswinds there. So the point I'm making is we had physical challenges. We also had mental challenges because, again, we did have our son with us. So we were concerned for his safety. Uh, and then just the, you know, no matter how great it, it is, you know, to have a trip like that, uh, you know, there are some emotional and, and mental struggles that go along with that. Uh, yeah. So we, we had to deal with all that. So yeah, it, it did strengthen our marriage. It did strengthen our, our partnership. That's why the subtitle of the book is Less, Lessons on Life, Leadership, and Love, because we certainly did learn a lot of lessons about love on that trip. That's so cool. Yeah. And, and I'll put links to your book in the show notes of this episode if people want to go and listen or read the full story. Uh, and what an incredible experience that must have been. Thanks for sharing it with us today. So you get back to Pennsylvania. And what was your plan when you got back to Pennsylvania at that point? Yeah, my plan was work in the family business again. Um, and, you know, I wanted to raise my kids uh, near my father. My father was getting older. Uh, and then you know, I wanted my kids to be raised near my brothers and sisters. And, you know, my wife's family was all the way over in Austria. So that, that wasn't an option that we wanted to consider. And, and so that's why we moved back there, worked in the family business, uh, did not plan on uh, returning to the military. Although, uh, you know, I was back for a year and I was starting to miss it a little bit. And somebody said, hey, why don't you go down the armory in Scranton and, you know, talk to the National Guard down there about joining. And at that point in time, I didn't even know what the National Guard was. You know, I was on active duty, had no idea what the National Guard was. But I went down there, talked to the guys, and uh, they seemed like good people. And I joined the National Guard. And that was another, I, I, I've been blessed to be appointed by God to make some good decisions. And that was a good decision I made. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I had so many great experiences uh, in the National Guard after that. It allowed me to uh, get back on active duty from time to time, uh, especially after 9-11 and even before 9-11, I had an opportunity with the National Guard to go over and lith to Lithuania for a year. I served in Lithuania uh, in 2000, you know, seven years after the Lithuanians regained their independence from the Soviet Union. So that was a very interesting time to be in that part of the world. And then in 2005, I led another brigade over in Ramadi after that, I had the opportunity to command a 28th Infantry Division, 15,000 soldiers, and then uh, served my last three years as a Deputy Commanding General in U.S. Army Europe. So just been very blessed with tremendous experiences and have uh, had just tremendous uh, soldiers and other military personnel. And you became an infantry officer once you came back or once you signed up in the National Guard. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I became an infantry officer. I was a medical service corps officer, but became an infantry officer, commanded an infantry company in the National Guard. And then after that, I, I just really wanted to get the formal training. Uh, so I had the opportunity to go to the resident officer advanced course at Fort Benning. So I went to the uh, infantry officer advanced course for six months. Uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then went right into Ranger School after that. And and again, uh, I just felt I needed to to do those things in order to get that formalized training to enhance my credibility. Uh, I just felt that there was, there was absolutely a need to do that. I'm sure Ranger School was no big deal after your cross country trip. <laughs> well, I, I was 34 years old when I graduated from ranger school. Oh yeah. So well, I was a, I was about 10 years older than most of the other ranger students there, but uh, I was able, now again, I was in good shape, was able to make it through and, you know, a school like ranger school, it's all about heart, you know, having the heart to make it through. And, 
And yeah. uh, I was fortunate enough to to be able to, to make it through. And uh, it was a great a great uh, leadership training experience for me. Were you a hungry ranger or a sleepy ranger? I was probably more hungry than sleepy. <laughs> I think I was too. I think I, I, I was looking at all the letters that I wrote my wife when I was at ranger school. And I was like, how did you read these? I mean, it's literally just me listing all the foods that I want when I get back. <laughs> well, I would love to ask you about Ramadi uh, and, and that experience. Tell us a little bit about the, the circumstances surrounding your time there when you were in brigade command. Yeah. Um, yeah, I took, uh, you know, 2000, uh, Pennsylvania national guardsmen over there. You know, well, when we got mobilized and we went to, uh, Camp Shelby, Mississippi to do our, our post mobilization training before we deployed over to Ramadi, uh, I had actually 35 different national guard states contributing to my brigade. It was 2005. You know, we got we got mobilized in January 2005. At that time, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq had been going on for some time, and even the National Guard was getting tapped out by then. And uh, so, you know, when you think of deploying as a brigade, you think of deploying with the soldiers that you've been training with. Uh, in our case, it was completely different. As I said, we. We, we all met at that mobilization site, and we had to build a team. And then when we got to Ramadi, uh, not only did I have those National Guard soldiers in my brigade, uh, but I, I also then uh, was task-organized with an active-duty Marine battalion and an active-duty Army battalion. And since the Marines were on seven-month deployments and we were on a 12-month deployment, I had three different Marine battalions working for me. And I had two different army battalions working for me because 269 armor out of uh, Fort Benning at the time uh, was already there in Ramadi for six months when I got there. So I worked with two, you know, 269 was part of my brigade for six months. And then first of the 506th uh, from 101st came in and they were task organized to me. So, I mean, talk about friction, a lot of friction, uh, just in the fact that you had all of these different elements coming together. Uh, and then you know, friction with 269 leaving, that was an armor battalion. They were replaced by first of the 506, which was a light infantry battalion. So more friction there because you still needed tanks in East Ramadi. Uh, so we had to take one of our National Guard armor platoons that had been operating for six months as motorized infantry and transition them back to tanks. And again, that was a National Guard platoon of soldiers that, that was able to pull that off. So um, just so proud of the Marines and the soldiers that served there because it was a very violent, very, very tough, chaotic situation there. Uh, it was uh, known as the most dangerous place on, on earth at that time. And uh, the soldiers and Marines just did... Uh, so well in such tough conditions. And when I say so well, by that I mean they, they adhered to our military values. Mm -hmm. uh, they treated the Iraqis with dignity and respect. They did all the right things that they were supposed to do, and they served very honorably. Uh, we had 82 of our soldiers and Marines and, and Navy personnel killed in the one year that I, I commanded the brigade there. We had another uh, over 250 soldiers and Marines and others wounded seriously, seriously enough where they had to be evacuated back to the United States. Uh, so there was somebody, you know, getting killed or getting seriously wounded on almost a daily basis. And uh, it was a tough environment for those soldiers and Marines, and they performed uh, so admirably and so honorably, and I'm so proud of them. Well, General, thank you so much for your level of service. And every we, a lot of us serve, but uh, very few of us, I think, ever get into a situation like that where there's such a loss of life and there's such a very real reminder, I'm sure, when you're over there uh, of the price of freedom, the price uh, that these, these brave men and women are willing to pay that are very young. So, so thank you, first of all, 
I'm curious, what were some of the biggest leadership lessons that you took away from that experience leading in such a kinetic and challenging environment like that? Yeah. You know, one thing I do want to mention um, is the um, the female soldiers that served with us. There were 200 female brigade. And uh, the the MP platoon, for example, they were out just about every day mm-hmm. in IED infested, uh, you know, routes. Uh, and uh, they're, they're, uh, they had 50% of, their, of the soldiers in that platoon were female soldiers. Uh, the platoon sergeant was a female. Uh, we had other female soldiers driving trucks and moving logistical uh, supplies across our area of operation. And, and they were, uh, most of those uh, uh, truck drivers were female. So I just want to say, uh, and, and you mentioned men and women, I'm right, the female soldiers that performed uh, remarkably well. And, and uh, it was nice to have everybody part of the team there. And um, I, I, I learned a, a lot of different things. I learned the importance of providing purpose to those that you are leading. Uh, you know, a lot of the days in Ramadi could feel like Groundhog Day. Uh, and to ensure that soldiers understood the overarching purpose for why they were there and the purpose I communicated to them was, hey, we're over here 7,000 miles away from our families in this dangerous environment so we could protect our families and friends and all Americans back home. And, you know, uh, and communicated that uh, regularly. Um, the, the, the fact that at, at how important, you know, especially when fighting in a counterinsurgency is, is you know, treating the uh, Iraqi civilians with, with dignity and respect and really listening to what they had to say, listening to what their, their, their gripes and, 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 and issues were and then trying to help them uh, work through some of those things. Uh, Decision making. You know, uh, leaders have to make decisions and you don't necessarily have to make the decision quickly. It depends on the circumstance, but you do ultimately have to make a decision. And sometimes the decision is, hey, we're going to stay with this particular course of action, but that's still a decision. Uh, tactical patience uh, of, of knowing how, when you could take a little bit of time making a decision. We had this one situation where we had a patrol out and they were, I happened to be in our operations center at the time. They were asking me to direct a, a Super Cobra helicopter from the Marines who were supporting us to fire on a, uh, an element that was on top of a roof who this patrol leader believed to be insurgents. And I let the situation develop a little bit. And we found out it was actually a civil affairs team. Uh, from the Marine Division that was up on top of that roof. So again, just just uh, allowing uh, you know the situation to develop and using that tactical patience, I found was was uh, uh, important. And, that, and really, that comes with experience. That comes with intuition. That that comes with you know developing some wisdom. Uh, and 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 that's why most leaders who are commanding battalions and commanding brigades have have been in the army a while. I mean, because th- those are the type of leaders you want. With, with some of that experience. What do you think you're most proud of when you reflect back on your many years of service? What are you most proud of? Yeah, I, I'm, uh, you know, obviously that, that defining period in my life in Ramadi uh, and the fact that uh, I believe I served honorably, you know, I made mistakes over there. Uh, but, but uh, overall, I, I, I believe that I, served in a way that was beneficial to the troops I led. I'm, I'm proud of that. And, and just really proud of um, the people I've met. You know, uh, this interesting thing about the military. The military is one of the most diverse organizations anywhere, you know, whether it be the Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force, whatever. They're divor- diverse organizations made up of people with similar values. And, and I think that's what's so great about the military. I think that's why people like you and me, you know, like to serve is because it's, it, we, we've got that diversity, yet we, we do adhere to very similar values and, and similar purpose. And that's kind of the glue that molds us together. 
You, you talk about, when you talk about leadership, uh, your big three are character, competence, and resilience. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, what those mean to you and, and why those are your big three? Yeah, with, with character, uh, it's, it's adhering to your core values and hopefully your core values align with your organizational values. Uh, it, it's also about caring for people. Uh, you know, again, treating treating those people with dignity and respect, and then and then when you when you adhere to your values and you have integrity, that uh, develops the third part of how I define character, and that is trust. So you're able to grow trust and cultivate trust in the organization. And then with competence, I'm not really talking about technical competence. I think it should be a given that whatever your job is. You know, if, if you're a fireman, you got to be competent in that job as a fireman. If you're an infantryman or an armor or, or officer or whatever, or, or soldier, you have to be competent in that particular, uh, you know, field. Uh, when I talk about competence, I'm talking about a couple of different things. I'm talking about, uh, as a leader, being competent to provide a vision or a purpose to those you lead. And I think you have to be able to provide that purpose at, at, at any level. It's about decision making. And I talked a little bit about that already, but it's, it's, it's uh, having the courage to make a decision with less than, than perfect information. And then it's about communicating. I found that as a leader, 90% of being a leader is about communicating. And, and uh, I don't care, again, what level you're at. It's all about communicating to your, your followers to let them know, know what's going on, being transparent, because if you don't let your followers know what's going on, they're going to make up their own narrative. And it may not be the right narrative that you want them to make up, obviously. So communication, I think, is extremely important. And, and then the resilience part, you know, that's all about having positive energy. Because, uh, you know, I, I do think there's a proactive way to be resilient. So having positive energy, being an optimist, you still got to be pragmatic. You know, you can't just have rose-colored gla- glasses on. but you got to be optimistic and 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 be positive about things and and um, generate positivity for your organization because there's nothing worse than an energy sponge mm-hmm. in an organization. You know, you want to be able to generate that energy. Um, you, you also uh, want to um, be fit. And when I say be fit, I'm not only talking about physical fitness, which I do think is an element of of, of resiliency, but you have to be spiritually fit. You have to be mentally fit. You have to be emotionally fit. You know, all of those things. And all of those things could be worked on and developed by an individual. You, you could get better in every one of those things. Just as you develop physical fitness, you could develop emotional fitness. And we could talk more about that if, if you want to. And, th- and then you mentioned vulnerability earlier in our conversation. I think vulnerability is a part of being resilient. Because when I'm talking about vulnerability, I'm talking about putting yourself outside of your comfort zone. Hmm. So Cal, when you went to ranger school, you put yourself outside of your comfort zone. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think we have to find resiliency just doesn't happen naturally. You've got to work yeah. to become a resilient person. And one of the ways to do that is to uh, place yourself in uncomfortable situations so you could transform and grow from that. Uh, so I, I think that that is a big part of, of resiliency is, is vulnerability. And then we talked about the other elements of vulnerability, you know, letting people know that, hey, I've made mistakes before. This is what I've learned. And, and I want to help you develop so you don't make the same mistake. You know, th- those type of things that all adds up to the ability to overcome adversity. And, and I really think that's what resiliency is all about. There you go, everyone. That is decades of leadership knowledge uh, laid on. And, and, you know, it's interesting to me. I've been thinking a lot about leadership for the past year. And we talked about this a little bit before we recorded. And now I'm in a formal leadership role. And I'm reminded just how difficult leadership can be. It takes a lot of effort. It takes, it's, we're dealing with human beings and human beings are complicated uh, beings. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, everything you just said is, I, I'm listening and taking that in because it's just a reminder of, of the principles of leadership. And uh, I appreciate you sharing that. I want to ask you, uh, as we're wrapping up here, about how you lead yourself. You talked a little bit about 
just fitness overall. But when we think about everything that you've done in your career, all the situations that you've led in, these are tough environments. Uh, and as the leader, you're often looked at as the example. People are taking their cues from you. So I'm just curious what advice you would give to us uh, about how you have found that you're able to lead yourself and keep yourself fit. Yeah, I think the big thing is um, understanding what your duty is. And when you're, when you're leading an organization, like the, the organization you're leading right now, Cal, you know, there's people counting on you to do your job as a leader. They're, they're counting on you. And so I just ha- think having that sense of duty, knowing there's people counting on you. And that goes for anybody. You know, if, if you're not leading in a particular organization, you might be leading your family. So your family members are counting on you. So having that sense of duty. And then because you have that sense of duty, understanding that you have to have the self-discipline to do the right things. And as, as leaders, we have to be aware that our followers are watching us even when we don't think they're watching us. And, and again, that, that kind of all adds up to, to credibility. Uh, the, the other thing I do want to mention, which I didn't really focus as much on that, uh, that I usually like to when I was talking about character, is leaders have to care more f- uh, for the welfare of their followers than they care for their own welfare. So as a leader, you have to put the welfare of your followers ahead of your own welfare. And that is a very, you mentioned leadership is hard. That, that is a very hard thing for a person to do is to put somebody else's welfare ahead of their own. And I know you're a parent. I think the only people who could naturally put someone else's welfare ahead of their own is a parent uh, in, in terms of, of, of their, their child. We could do that naturally as parents when it comes to our child. But as a leader, we also have to do that for our followers. So it's just, yeah. it's just all of those things kind of bundled together. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of the the scripture of of dying to yourself. It really is because you're having to suppress that human tendency to think about yourself uh, for the sake of someone else. Yeah, so that you can yeah. really serve serve someone else. Um, General Gronsky, I want to ask you if you could give us. You, you've been married for I think I think I've heard you say is it forty something years? You've been yeah, married? it's going to it's going to be forty years in September. Wow, T- tell us what what advice would you have for us? in terms of marriage or parenting advice? Yeah. L- lately, my wife, Barry and I have been saying, I'm not going to accept the invitation to the fight you're inviting me to. Mm. <laughs> you know? That's so, good. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you know, I'm not going to accept that invitation. I'm not going to get in a fight. And, <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, just, just uh, you know, negotiating, you know, like, it's not one way to other, you know, there's always a common ground. There's always a negotiation. And then I already mentioned communication community. I found that so many problems occur when you simply don't communicate. Yes. You know, so, so let your partner, let your spouse know what you're thinking, why you're thinking it, you know, inform them. If you've got something going on, let them know, <laughs> uh, you know, just, just, just the simple things, uh, like that, uh, really, I think add up to, uh, a strong marriage. And then, you know, what it all comes down to, and I say this, the same thing, you know, parents say, you know, how, how should, what, what's the key to being a parent? Same thing. That's the key to being a, a good partner, a good spouse is just love them. Hmm. You know, I think the best thing you could do for your children is just show them that you love them. Hmm. I think the best thing you could do for your spouse is show them that you love them. So do the little things, you know, if you're going to go get a glass of water, bring them back a glass of water, hmm. you know, Treat your spouse like you would treat a guest in your house, you know, uh, you know, just be yes. very considerate because, you know, sometimes you live together for 40 years, you kind of take each other for granted, right? Yeah. So, you know, just doing those little things, opening up the door for them, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, just, just helping them with a, a little chore or a little task that they normally do, but help them out. All, all that adds up to having a, a, a great life together. That's so good. Yeah. It just makes me think of just kindness, just being kind, uh, to your spouse, to your loved ones. And you're right. It's so easy to fall into that rut of just being roommates yeah, uh, and, and forget how important that person is to you that you see every day. Um, General Gronsky, do you have, I, I've heard that you have a new book coming out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And you, can you also tell us 
uh, for those that are listening, where they can follow the work that you're putting out or where, where they can find you on social media or online. Yeah. 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 You know, the book I wrote about the bicycle trip, uh, you know, the ride of our lives to me that at its heart is a leadership book. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, what I wanted to do was, was actually, uh, write a second book. Cause I just have, uh, so much I, I want to communicate to others really based on mistakes I've made and learnings I've had because of those mistakes that I want to try to help other people develop to be, you know, stronger leaders. And I think anybody could become a stronger leader, uh, no matter, uh, you know, how much, how little experience you've had or how much experience you've had. And, uh, so the book is, is, um, uh, a leadership book and it covers, a, a it really covers the essential topics that we, we just talked about, you know, about, about character, about competence and, and, and about resilience. And I, I'm working with, a, uh, I just signed on with a publishing company. It's, it's Fidelis Publishing. And the book should be out in June of 2021. So oh, I'm, wow. still wor- I'm still working on the book. Uh, I hope to have the manuscript complete by late this year. And then uh, again, it should, uh, it should be out in, in, in June 2021. So I'm excited about that. In terms of getting in touch with me, my website is pretty simple. It's johngronsky.com. And uh, when you go to my website, I've got different links to my social media sites. I'm pretty active on social media, you know, on, on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And, uh, you know, my email address is there on the, on the uh, website. And I do send out a, a leadership email almost every week, you know, thereabouts every seven to 10 days uh, where I put some pretty good leadership information. So it's a free leadership email. Anybody could register for it on my website. That's how you can get in touch with me. Fantastic. And I'll make sure and put links to all of that in this episode's show notes. Well, General Gronsky, I'm going to give you the last word. If there's anything that we didn't cover that you would tell or share with the leaders out there who are trying to navigate, as we talked about, the challenges of leadership, uh, I'll give you the last word before we uh, head out today. Now, I just want to say, Cal, um, how, how, how proud I am of you. I see you put very positive messages out there on, on social media. Uh, by by actually hosting this podcast, you put some great content out there. Uh, I, I know you're a dedicated uh, family man, and I'm I'm proud of you for doing that and for serving our country, uh, you know as as well. So thank thanks for all of that that you do. Uh, very proud of our our military personnel out there uh, doing such great work and in such trying circumstances, and uh, we do have a, a great country that I'm very proud to be a part of. And I, I just want to thank you again for everything you do to put out such, such great content that inspires and motivates many other people. Well, sir, that so means so much to me coming from you. And again, just thank you so much for your service. Thank you for putting yourself in harm's way and doing that for, for this nation. And I am so thankful for you spending such a generous portion of your time today with us and sharing all those insights and uh, I wish you well and I'm excited to follow all the great things that you're putting out. Okay. Thanks, Cal. I appreciate the time. Hey friends. Wow. So many incredible takeaways from General Gronsky. I loved his big three of character, competence, and resilience. He also emphasized the importance of being fit and the importance of making decisions with often imperfect information. As you head out today, I just want to encourage you to do two things, to take what General Gronsky shared with us today and put them into action in your life with the people that you lead. First, as it relates to your overall fitness, do a self-assessment and examine where you need the most work. Is it your physical fitness? Is it your spiritual fitness? Is it your emotional fitness? Whatever your answer, confront the reality head on. So be honest with yourself and then find someone, find a trusted agent, find someone in your life that can that you can share that with and, and help you make incremental progress in that area. We lead out of who we are. We lead out of the person that we are. And when we are fit, when we are fit in a holistic sense, we're going to be more effective. And then second, as leaders, we have to be decisive. I, I do this on my team all the time. I'm constantly asking myself, Cal, 
Can you make a decision on this? Can you make a decision on this? Or the people on my team pushing the decision to them. Can you make a decision? Do you have enough information? Yes, perfect information would be lovely. We'd love to have perfect information, but rarely as leaders do we have that privilege. And so we have to be willing to make decisions. Not making decisions is truly detrimental to our organizations. And as you go throughout your week, I want you just to be very deliberate about making decisions. Constantly ask yourself, do I have enough information to make a decision on this? And then even articulate that in the meeting. Hey, can we make a decision on this? Can we leave this meeting with a decision made on these particular topics? And that helps you move the ball forward. Be courageous, make decisions, and bring clarity to your team by moving the ball forward. That's an incredibly important part in being an effective leader. If today's episode resonated with you, please share it with someone. And please go reach out to General Gronsky at his website, johngronsky.com. As always, thank you so much for being here today. It's an honor that you would give this show your most valuable resource. As you head out today, go out and make a difference in the life of just one person, whoever you're interacting with today. Try to boost them up, show them some kindness. Remember that life is short. Let's make it count.